Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're revisiting an interview that we recorded with the French economist Thomas Piketty in May 2017, the week that Emmanuel Macron won the French presidential election. And we're going to be thinking about what we've learned since about Macron, about France, and about democracy. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas, where you can read elegant and expansive essays on every subject imaginable, from Amir Srinivasan on pronouns to James Meek on the WHO, from Pankaj Mishra on Anglo-America to Catherine Rundell on the Greenland Shark. Get 12 issues in print and online, that's half a year of the LRB, for just £12, with the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. We've been revisiting a few interviews that we recorded at Momentous Points with interesting people over the last few years, Judith Butler on Donald Trump, Yuval Harari on robots. We spoke to Thomas Piketty, who's the author of, among many other things, Capital in the 21st Century, probably the most influential work of economics, political economy, just writing about politics of the last two decades. We spoke to him just before the second round of the 2017 presidential election. So Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen were facing off, having come through the first round. And in the first round, the candidates of the main parties, the centre-left and centre-right parties, had been defeated. So French politics was in a state of turmoil. And that's reflected a bit in our conversation. We're trying to understand what's going on. Thomas Piketty is trying to make sense of it. And he was involved in that campaign. He had advised Amon, the candidate of the socialists, who had done really terribly in the first round, 6% of the vote. So it's partly a conversation about the churn in democratic politics, the new divisions, the new ways in which voters were lining up behind these candidates. We knew when we spoke that Macron was going to win. He won slightly more easily than Thomas Piketty thought. It was 66-34 rather than 60-40. But still, Marine Le Pen did get a third of the vote. So we reflected a bit on that. But also, as you'll hear, we talked more widely about what's going on with democracy and how it relates to the central theme of Piketty's great book, The Question of Inequality, whether democratic societies can deal with inequality, and if so, how. And that then touches on the question of Europe, which is another issue around which Thomas Piketty has been very involved as a public intellectual, as an advisor. He's a passionate pro-European. He believes in a more integrated Europe. So we wanted to play this conversation because it's interesting, and I think it's always interesting to hear these very interesting people reflecting at a moment of political flux trying to understand what's going on, and now looking back. So after this, Helen and I are going to reflect on what we think we've learned since about Macron and about some of the themes that Thomas Piketty addresses here. We're speaking the morning after the French presidential debate between Macron and Le Pen, that Macron was thought to have won, but then Hillary Clinton was thought to have won her debate with Donald Trump. Uh, Let's not go there. But we're speaking, obviously, before the vote, this weekend. We have some idea of what might happen. 
but we don't know for certain. But Tom, if we could go back to the first round, the most striking thing was that the two main parties, the mainstream parties, were not able, either of them, to get a candidate through to the second round. So broadly, what is driving that? And that's a phenomenon we see in different parts of the democratic world. We'll come on to the particular problem for social democracy in a second. But what do you think is the primary driver of this inability for the mainstream parties to to command the vote they used to command? Well, there are long-run evolution in the in the structure of the electorate of left-wing parties. There are long-run uh, evolution on the challenges that they face. And there are also more shorter-run problems. So in, in the particular case of, of France and, and the Eurozone more generally, in the past 10 years, the parties in power, and so in particular the, the Socialist Party in the past five years, and the right-wing party Sarkozy the five years before, have done a terrible job with the financial crisis. So the fact that voters are fed up with them and, and want to try something else is not so surprising. So let, let's just put the facts straight. Uh, the financial crisis of 2008 doesn't come from Europe. It comes from the US. It comes from an excess of financial deregulation. It comes from the private banking sector. And Europe, and in particular Eurozone countries, have transformed this crisis into a public debt European crisis, in spite of the fact that there was no more public debt in the Eurozone to begin with than in the US, in Britain or in Japan, just because of our inability to organize ourselves. You cannot have a single currency and at the same time 19 different interest rates on the public debt on which financial markets can speculate, 19 different corporate tax in competition with one another. So the old system is badly conceived. I think it's possible to make it work, but you have to have a common public debt, a common budget, a common Eurozone assembly. And I think we need to involve national parliament members in the governance of the Eurozone. So you need deep economic and even more importantly, political, democratic, institutional reform in the Eurozone to make it work. And in the past 10 years, both the right and the left in France have been completely unable to, to deliver on that front. And they have had an attitude, basically, which consists of saying, we have to wait for Germany to make proposal before we can change anything. And, and I think this is a terrible attitude because France has to play its part in this European debate. And also because this, in fact, contributes to raise sort of a nationalist feeling in France, sometimes anti-German attitude, which is uh, very bad. So now we have this election. Uh, you know, I think Macron is going to win on Sunday. I think the difference with Trump-Clinton, there are many differences, but one of the key differences is that Trump was still able to attract some of the pro-business vote in the US, whereas uh, Marine Le Pen is very uh, frightening for uh, lots of people, including you know higher education group, but also higher income and wealth group in France. So I don't think she can win. But she will probably do a very, a very good score, you know, much higher than her first round score, which was only 21%, which is already a lot. She can go above 40. And crucially, much higher than her father. And much higher than much her Exactly. Higher. So we have to remember in 2002, he was at 16% at the first round. And, and he, he went down, he, didn't he? he? He went up to 18% by two percentage right. points. But the second round, you know, it was 80 to 18. Now we are going to have maybe 60, 40. Uh, and so that's a big difference. This means that a long way toward 50% has been already you know, accomplished uh, during this 15-year period. So this is 
very frightening. And we've had regional elections in France two years ago, where both in the north of France and the south of France, we had elections that were close to 55-45 between the right and the National Front. So we are getting to a situation that is close to be completely out of control. And, and this is really sad, and we should not feel... Uh, you know, reinsured by the fact that probably Macron is going to win. So we'll come on to Macron in a second. And on the two main parties, there is still a big difference between how they perform. I mean, Fion, without the scandal, presumably at least might have had a chance. And had he got through, he might have won, possibly. Whereas Amon, whose campaign I think you were involved in, in some respects, it was a wider European story that mainstream social democratic parties are really in some places in a kind of freefall Given how the blame is doled out by the voters who are sick of the lot of them, why is the left getting more of the blame than the right? And of course, that's true in this country, too. Okay, so in the case of France, you know, I think it's just the left was in power during the past five years. So the the natural outcome was to return to the right. And indeed, this probably what would have happened without the political scandals and financial scandals around Fillon. And I think... You know, the right-wing party should have been able to replace Fillon uh, much earlier. This is, you know, I have no problem with Macron winning if it's for good reason. But here, in a way, it's not that there was a strong support for Macron. It's just that the support for Fillon completely collapsed in one month. So we have to remember that at the end of January, before the, the political scandal uh, happened, Fillon was above 30% in the poll. Was at 32%. Macron was at 17, 18%, 15 points below. There is no way this would have changed uh, without the, the political scandal. So the right was about to win just because uh, voters were about to go from left to right, right to left, just as they did five years ago. In the case of, of the Socialist Party candidate Amon, I think he, he suffered a lot, and probably this was uh, underestimated in the first place, from the fact that electors were so fed up with the Socialist Party in power that even though Amon himself was very critical of the choices that were made. And he did everything Hollande. he could to distance himself. Yes, but in the end, this was the candidate of the Socialist Party. So, so in the end, Mélenchon, is, you know, more radical left candidate, did 20% and, and Amon did 6%. I think, you know, tactical voting consideration, of course, played a role. So, so Amon was also uh, the victim of a sort of a double tactical vote. You know, the people more to the center voted for Macron, the people more to the left voted for Mélenchon, and in the end, in the middle. You know, it's a complicated electoral system. If it had been a parliamentary election with proportional representation, I think it would have been very different because then probably you would have had you know 15 percent for the Socialist Party, 15 percent for Macron, and 15 percent for Mélenchon. It would have been much more balanced. But when you have this two-round election and you want to make it to the second round, as you know, there is a self-fulfilling mechanics of uh, between polls and actual voting behavior. Once some polls show that a candidate is falling behind the top contenders and Nobody There's a rush for the exit. There's a rush for the exit. So, look, at the end of the day, we have four candidates between 20 and 24. So this is clearly, you have a concentration of the vote in the top four contenders, which is something we, we never had such a split vote. In the end, if you look in terms of political ideology at the structure of the first round of the election, I would say you have an electorate that is split into three big uh, components, you know, so a nationalist component, which is Le Pen, uh, Dupont-Aignan, part of Fillon, that's about one-third of the vote, 
30%, one third. You have a more uh, laissez-faire, uh, pro-business, uh, some would say neoliberal vote, which is around Macron part of Fillon, which is about 30% of the vote. And then, if you put together Mélenchon and, and Hamon and the two other small left-wing candidates, you have about 30% of the vote. I mean, there's, there's a lot of difference within each of these three groups, but basically you have a you know, nationalism, liberalism, and, and socialism, if you wish, you know, if we want to have big uh, political categories, which are well represented. So we have an electorate that is uh, wondering, like all of us, about how to regulate capitalism. And so, you know, liberalism is a response, nationalism is a reaction, socialism is, an, is another form of reaction, you know, more peaceful more democratic than nationalism, but it's difficult to invent new forms of socialism or you know, collective regulation of capitalism. And in France, like in Britain, like in other countries, you know, it takes time to, to, to deliver these new uh, platforms. Looked at from the outside, you might assume that, as, as you famously documented, the, the rising levels of inequality across within nations, but you see the same phenomenon everywhere would make inequality a driver of politics as well in the way that we might expect, which is to make redistribution and politicians advocating redistribution more popular. And it hasn't come out like that. And we're seeing that here too, as you say, that the progressives have become the wealthier and the better educated and the nationalists and the angriest voters in many ways are not pushing for redistribution. Why? Why is inequality not more central to our politics. It's having all these effects, these kind of secondary effects. But why is it not having a more direct primary effect as the dividing line? I think that unfortunately, you know, ethnic division and nationalist division are sort of taking over the class-based uh, division, basically. Uh, but it could change. You know, this is not something, it's not as if we are stuck in this situation forever. But I think this, there is a need to rethink the conditions under which uh, you know, class-based vertical redistribution and winning coalition pushing for vertical redistribution can or cannot happen. And so if we look at the history of, of the 20th century and the evolution of inequality over this period, one of the uh, central findings of my work is that there was no reduction of inequality until World War One. It's really after these major shocks of World War One, World War Two, the Great Depression, that the elites had to accept a number of social reform and fiscal reform in, in Europe in particular, which led to a sustained reduction of, of inequality. And this sort of post-World War II uh, consensus around the welfare state and social democratic parties in its various forms in the different countries was in a way a very exceptional period that was produced by particular political events. And it has lasted for so long, well, just several decades that we, we sort of thought of it as a new normal situation, but in fact it is the, the product of particular circumstances and it's a, in a way it's, you can also say that it's a miracle that people are able to forget about all the other division between them, you know, the ethnic division, the nationalist division between countries and to focus on the what makes them uh, similar and what makes them have uh, you know common uh, interest in policies on the basis of income wealth education and more universal criteria than uh, you know race ethnic or nationality and so but this miracle can happen again but for this we need to accept the view that there's nothing 
particularly natural in this way of organizing the political conflict. And we, you know, we have to take the step. I think we have to show that the you know new forms of solidarity, new form of egalitarianism, new form of redistribution are possible in the globalized economy. That's complicated. This requires new tools. But if we give up and we just say, okay, now it's not possible, you know, which is a little bit like what Macron is saying sometimes, which is say, he's saying like, you know, for instance, the wealth tax in France, okay, you cannot measure easily cross-border financial assets. So we just get rid entirely of taxing financial wealth. It will be only real estate. So, you know, middle-class people who have their uh, little apartment worth 100,000 euros or 200,000 euros, they will pay big property tax. But the people with 10 million euros in financial portfolio, they pay nothing. Now, if you do that, if you go further in this direction, I think you are exacerbating the feeling by middle-class and, and lower-class voters that the system is working for people at the top. So, so we have to be very, very careful if we want to avoid this uh, evolution. If I can finish with a very big question, but it connects what we've been talking about in relation to France, but also the broader themes of your work and, and your lectures. As you said, one of your big lessons is that none of this is preordained. None of it is some kind of natural process. Politics makes a huge difference to all of these big questions above all the question of inequality. And yet the story of the 20th century, it both shows that human societies can completely reorient the way that they're run, new kinds of social solidarity can emerge, the rich can throw in their lot with the poor. But that it often takes a crisis. And these crises are often truly terrible events. The two world wars, the Great Depression, and so on. So when we look ahead, I mean, your work both suggests that there are some quite technical things that we could do if a politician could sell it that could make a big difference. But it also suggests to me anyway, that the kind of change we saw in the 20th century, a lot of it was conditional on the kinds of crises we would do anything to avoid. There's an optimistic and a pessimistic takeaway. Am I, and yeah, my instincts know, as, are pessimistic, but I would like look, to be as, as persuaded it, we can do it without the crisis. <laughs> As intellectuals and as social scientists, you know, we believe in the in the power of ideas, in the power of books, and I think our role is to try to show that there is a democratic way, there is a democratic path toward the right uh, redistribution and policy and, and development uh, strategy. Now, is this the only path and is this what's going to happen? Uh, I'm not so sure. So in the case of, of Europe, the big risk, of course, now is to have generalized the uh, split of the European Union and in particular of the Eurozone. And I think after Brexit, uh, we cannot claim that this cannot happen. You know, clearly this can happen. You know, if Cameron did it, you know, of playing this kind of stupid political game of calling for a referendum, and at the end of the day, you don't even know what people have voted for, you know, and if a country with a long democratic parliamentary uh, tradition like Britain is able to play such a stupid populist political game, you know, this can certainly happen in Italy, this can certainly happen in France, this can happen everywhere. So I don't know where will be the next shock, but I think this is a serious risk. And and then then you enter into chaos and a return to national currencies uh, in the Eurozone, uh, probably with a lot of uh, inflationary and monetary uh, chaos, and, and, and you don't know exactly where it stops. And this can deliver sometime redistribution which can be needed but at the price of a lot of nationalist conflict uh, ethnic conflict and this is this is uh, very frightening so at the same time you know i think it's not so complicated 
to solve the problem we have to solve through peaceful democratic way. So that's why, you know, I still, I still believe in this solution. If you look at the history of inequality and class conflict and, and the history of public debt, you see in the past crises which were at least as bad. And sometimes they were solved following you know, dramatic shocks, events. But what we can also remember from these historical instances is that there are solutions. Like if we think of public debt after World War II, Germany, France had huge public debt, you know, 200% of GDP more than Greece today, and with a much bigger GDP, because Greece is only 2% of European GDP. And what happened is that they took the decision to postpone this public debt, you know, in particular the external debt of Germany at the, at the London uh, 1953 conference was postponed. Officially, it was not cancelled. You know, officially, what was decided was, okay, we will talk again about it after German unification. And indeed, in 1991, the issue was brought up again and the decision was made to cancel it completely because, in fact, there was no indexation on inflation or GDP in 1953, so the amounts were so ridiculously small. That, that. Now, I think at the end of the day, this is what should happen and this is what will happen with part of the uh, Greek uh, public debt and more generally the Southern European public debt. A country like Italy right now, is putting 4% of GDP uh, in interest payment to its own rentiers because it's mostly domestic debt and at the level of the of the eurozone all debts are domestic so you know, we can we can do what we want and Italy is paying 4% of GDP in interest payment to its own rentiers whereas the total budget of its entire higher education system is less than 1% of GDP so what is the best way to prepare the future and to have the knowledge economy and innovation economy of the future you know of course we should it sounds obvious <laughs> so, so, so so at, at some point, I think, you know, common sense should prevail. But for this, we need in particular France and, and Germany and Italy and Spain to have the, the political reform in the Eurozone with the, you know, Eurozone uh, Democratic Assembly to be able to build the democratic legitimacy to take this difficult decision about public debt restructuring, common tax on corporations. What makes me optimistic at the end of the day is I believe the attachment of public opinion to the European ideal in Germany, in France, but also in Italy and Spain is much stronger than what it was in, in Britain. And, and I think in the end, this, is, this will prevail. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, Helen, we, we both listened back to that interview. I think it is genuinely fascinating to hear people trying to make sense of things in real time. And some of it feels pretty dated. There's a kind of passion around democratic politics, who's up, who's down, which fades quite quickly. And yet the big puzzle is still in many ways the big puzzle, which is what does Macron's presidency mean? And Thomas Piketty 
He's trying to grapple with the idea that this man who was once in some sense of the left was clearly now, back then, emerging as some different kind of politician, not easy to place on a left-right spectrum, but he hadn't done anything at that point. He hadn't even won at that point. He was just about to win. Do you think we know now? Do we have a better idea of where you would place Macron on the left-right spectrum? Yeah, I mean, I think that if we look at it in terms of French domestic politics, then he became pretty quickly, really, a president of the the centre-right. I mean, he appointed someone from the centre-right to be his first prime minister. This really shouldn't surprise anybody because he had made the centrepiece of his domestic economic stance that France had to do certain reforms, in particular so that its budget deficit would go back under 3% again. And it was the same reform agenda that French politicians of the centre-right had been trying since the 1990s. And indeed, to some extent, when Macron was in Hollande's government that the centre-left, once they'd been in power for a year or so, ended up doing. I mean, that pattern where the centre-left president came in promising to be radical and then retreated into something that was much more familiar to the centre-right was there with Mitterrand and was repeated with Hollande. So I think that Macron's presidency played out in economic terms as one would have expected. I think that what would be harder to have imagined back then was quite how the opposition to Macron's presidency was going to manifest itself, and in particular, the Gilets jaunes movement as a reaction against Macron. And I think the really interesting question is, could we have predicted that Macron's whole attention then was going to get diverted from these questions into trying to be a a geopolitical president, which is basically what he spent the last year or so at least, trying to be much more concerned now, certainly before the COVID crisis, with the European Union's geopolitical orientation rather than with reforming the Eurozone. Now, obviously, with the EU recovery fund, he's gone a bit back into Eurozone reform mode, but his immediate attention at the moment is not on the Eurozone. It's in what's going on in the Eastern Mediterranean and with Turkey and Libya. He has become a president preoccupied with the geopolitical. And with Lebanon as well. Yeah. One thing I was taken with listening back to Piketty was, and I do remember this, it's just you have to hear it to really be reminded of it, just how contingent Macron's rise was, because the assumption then was Fion, the candidate of the mainstream centre-right, so someone who would have been a president, maybe in some respects, not that dissimilar from Macron, a centre-right president, was probably heading for victory, probably and then was undone by a scandal that's still playing out. I mean, the the legal ramifications of his having employed and then paid his wife are still working their way through the French legal and political system. But there was nothing predetermined about Macron becoming president of France. So say Fillon had won, say it had been a, I don't know if this is the right word for it, a conventional centre-right politician rather than some centre-left politician who'd morphed into a movement politician and then became a centre-right politician, would French politics be very different, do you think? It's an impossible question to answer, but go on, have a go. The thing that distinguished Fillon from Macron, if we just are now sort of situating Macron as a as a centre-right politician, which I do think does have to be qualified in a few ways, is that Fillon was trying to inject some conservatism back into centre-right French politics. Remember, he had not been the favourite to become the, the centre-right's candidate. He was really seen, I think, to begin with, sort of third to Dupé or Sarkozy. 
as I recall, and he was really quite interested in the religious conservative question in the way in which Macron or Fillon's rivals on the centre-right on the Republican side weren't. So I don't think that a Fillon presidency would have been like a, a Macron presidency. I don't think Fillon would also have invested as much hope as Macron did in the early months of his presidency in trying to reset Franco-German relations around Eurozone reform. I think that in that respect, Fillon might have been more concerned about the geopolitical issues from the beginning, because what's interesting about Macron in this respect is the more geopolitical he has gone, the more he has taken himself away from the Merkel axis that he was investing so much hope in to begin with. It's only really the EU recovery fund that has allowed him to get back into some kind of alliance with the German government. And that only came after he had effectively led a confrontation of Southern European governments in the early stages of the pandemic crisis against the the German position. In that sense, he was bailed out by the German constitutional court decision and the impact that that had within internal German politics. But on these other questions, whether that be China, the Eastern Mediterranean, dealing with Turkey, he has actually moved his position further away. I think the other thing, though, that would have really made a difference in terms of anyone from either the Socialist Party or the the Republican Party being president of France is that would have left the French party system not intact because I think it was in considerable trouble long before Macron came in the scene, but it would have been at least in form intact. But what we saw with Macron winning the presidency was essentially the injection of charismatic and personality politics into French presidential politics in a way that blew apart the party system. I mean, that's the reality of the fact that neither the two main parties could get a candidate into the second round. It had happened before, back in 2002, I think it was. The Socialists hadn't managed to get a candidate into the, the second round, but not both parties. And then what we've seen is that Macron sort of created this, in one sense, party, but actually much more like a movement, a personal movement, that was able to win a a majority in the French um, legislature. I think one of the the significant things that's happened during the the lockdown period, I think it was in May, Macron en marche lost its absolute majority in the lower house because various members of the French parliament defected. These were people who were on the left. There was one of them I think I saw quoted saying something like, I'm a leftist, I must leave en marche, I cannot be in this party any longer because it's almost like an oxymoron to be a leftist now in en marche. So actually, Macron doesn't have a, even in his own terms, majority in the French National Assembly or in the lower house of the French National Assembly, even for this personal movement, which he effectively assembled, which in itself was so destructive of the French party system. Now, I think, which I think I've said before on here, I'm not sure that you can say that Macron simply destroyed the French party system as he so much occupied a space that was being left open by the failings of the two main parties. But I think that at times we underestimate just what a distinctive politician Macron has been in this disruption because he has done it from outside one of the established parties and it's much more personalised, even I would say much more personalised than the Trump presidency is in what he's injected into French politics. The Yellow Vest movement was about a lot of things, but it was partly a reaction against Macron's perceived technocratic, metropolitan, aloof, arrogant, affluent persona and the people around him, at least as much the people around him, this sort of cut-off elite. 
because he's not a conservative among many other things. I mean, this isn't the culture wars as such, but in those cultural terms, Macron is clearly on the other side from people who are angry and who are living in rural France and have a very different outlook. Again, another impossible question, and there's an irony here because Fillon, he was brought down by an absolute sort of insider establishment scandal. He was siphoning money off to pay his wife. But could a more conservative politician, do you think genuinely conservative politician, have seen off any of that? And this is a question for the future of France as well, for the mainstream parties. Or has that ground been ceded to still to Marine Le Pen or her equivalent on the right? Do you think a space exists for someone who could see off the yellow vest by sounding like he or she understood them? A mainstream politician? I think that this is indeed a very hard question. When I was listening to Piketty again, I was struck by how many times he referred back really to the problems that the EU treaties had caused in French politics. Because after all, it was the French electorate voting no in 2005 to the constitutional treaty that set various things in motion, including all the difficulties in France that then came with the Lisbon Treaty and the the divisions that that caused within the, the Socialist Party. So I think that story, which in one sense is what Piketty was telling, in which economic policy choices, macroeconomic policy choices in particular, but not only macroeconomic policy choices, were taken out of democratic politics, took a particular shape in France, and that Macron's sort of blowing apart the party system and coming to power on the back of personal movement was a moment whereby French politics was giving an answer to its problems within the euro that says we cannot carry on with our party system as it is and do what is necessary in order for France to count within the eurozone. It is important to remember that Macron's aspirational slogan during that campaign was, I'm going to take France back, France is back. That's the message that he wanted to convey. So if you think that actually it wasn't possible within the battering that the two main parties had taken for someone to come to that position with any hope whatsoever of success. And I think to say that somebody who was more conservative on the centre-right side could have achieved things that Macron couldn't have achieved would be a, you know, a spurious and erroneous conclusion to draw. I think, though, that there is something about the way in which Macron, his personality in itself, and the fact that he's running a cult of personality presidency is particularly provocative to the kinds of people who, at least initially, constituted the Gilets Jaunes protesters. He's representative of a France that they are least comfortable with in some sense. On the other hand, I think Fillon was brought down because of basically a corruption scandal. And that is a problem for not just the French political class, but across Western democracies too, the fact that enough politicians have enriched themselves. That conversation with Thomas Piketty had also touched on the very big themes of his work. So it's not just about France. It's not just about what's happened in the last few years. His book, Capital in the 21st Century, and I touched on it when I talked to him, it has an optimistic and a pessimistic reading of the relationship between inequality and democracy. Democracies can deal with inequality, but it takes really a massive crisis or shift, social, political, economic challenge. It's not inherent in democratic politics to be able to do this. It needs a jolt so that no one could have known back then the kinds of jolts that we've had recently, but particularly COVID. But also there's a possibility, and we could have known it back then, that climate might play that role because 
in the 20th century, the role is played by war. So if you take war out of it, do you think even in the last few months that we have any sense that some of the crises either of climate or related to things like global public health could shift democracies in this way? I mean, I'm instinctively sceptical, as I was, I think, when I spoke to him back then. I incline towards the pessimistic story. If you take war out of it, it's really hard to see how democracies do this. But do you think we've learned anything in the last few months about how there could be a shift? I mean, I think that Peter is very clear that it's war that reduced inequality in the 20th century, both in the immediate aftermath of the First World War and then for a more prolonged period after the Second World War. I'm like you, somewhat sceptical of the possibilities of anything that isn't war playing that role. Having said that, and I think this has come out more clearly during this present crisis, there is clearly a way on the left in particular of thinking about Green New Deal politics that very much sees the Green New Deal as an engine for this kind of radical economic, political, and in some sense, social transformation. That if you declare war on fossil fuels and you say that we have entirely to revolutionise the way in which we produce and use energy, that you are creating a sufficiently monumental economic task, perhaps comparable to reconstruction after a war, that it will necessarily involve changing the economic structures of society in ways that may well lead to, as they hope, less inequality. And partly it will do so because it will create, once again, demand for large-scale manufacturing activity in Western economies in terms of what's needed for that energy transformation to take place. Then, And we talked about this last week with Hans and Lucia. In the Piketty version of this, it was clear when we spoke to him then in 2017 that a lot of hope is invested in ideas of European solidarity and things that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, mutualisation of debt and the possibility of other forms of collective European political action. And Thomas Piketty has been a very vocal advocate of certain kinds of, you know, in a European context, quite radical institutional reforms towards a more centralised European project. We talked about it last week, but we, you know, the jury is still out. The current crisis, the COVID crisis, unlike anything that happened between 2017 and now, has begun to move Europe potentially in that direction? Do you think, in Piketty's terms, this crisis at least, if it's not the crisis that will allow us to tackle inequality, could be the crisis that allows Europe to address its fundamental question of what engenders solidarity? If you ask this question at a fairly general level and say has a significant shift taking place as a result of the COVID crisis? The answer is yes, because clearly at the beginning of March, then Merkel and others were dead sent against any idea that there could be common European borrowing in which all member states, or at least all member states of the Eurozone, would benefit and that they could do so in ways that didn't involve them then repaying from their own revenues that debt at some point in the future. I think though, if you ask the question, if you have debt, what kind of solidarity, political solidarity sustains that debt and debt has ultimately to be sustained, even in the age of QE, by taxes, then we're not seeing any change whatsoever. 
in terms of European solidarity, because the European Union Recovery Plan is a plan for the Commission to borrow in the EU's names, but it doesn't introduce any new taxes on EU citizens in order to sustain that debt. And in order for there to be, I think, meaningful solidarity where debt's concerned, you have to see meaningful taxes. And the one tax that the EU is committed to introduce is on plastic bags. I don't really think in the grand scheme of things that that really counts as a tax that shows that now European citizens are willing to share fiscal burdens together. I think it's fair to say, I'm putting words into his mouth, but it's there on the original interview that for Piketty, there has to be institutional reform too. You can't just do this by kind of patching it up. And we haven't seen in the last few months really anything by way of institutional reform. It has all been a form of patching it up. People have been surprised by what the politicians have been able to achieve. But, and I think this is also true in Piketty's account of the wider question of how democracies tackle inequality. There are policies, and he thinks the policies are fairly clear, and there are circumstances in which it's possible for those policies to be enacted. But if you want to get away from the central contingency that we started with, that it's all a kind of accident and you just have to hope that all the stars align, you need institutional reform too. And I say this a lot on this podcast, but one of the things that strikes me about democratic politics is that it's extraordinarily adept at adjusting to contingencies, but stable democracies are really bad, really bad at institutional reform. And we haven't seen any of that. So that part of the Piketty project seems to me is still as far off as, as ever. Yeah, and indeed, it's you could say what happened with the EU recovery fund is sort of doubling down on the idea that institutional reform is so difficult in the EU that it shouldn't be tried any longer, particularly when that involves anything to do with treaties, because this recovery fund is going to run through the existing architecture of the EU budget. It's primarily designed for Eurozone countries, but it's mixing up the institutional question of the EU structures and the Eurozone's institutional structures, precisely because the idea of reforming the Eurozone's institutional structures is so politically difficult. That was the last of this summer's look back at our archive. You can find our whole archive wherever you get this podcast. Um, I think there are lots of interesting episodes from interesting points in the last few years, and we'll be doing a bit more of this. But we're going to get back to what we usually do, which is regular conversations with interesting people about what's going on now. Next week, we're talking to Narina Hertz about loneliness in the 21st century and what it means for politics that we are such lonely societies. Coming up, we also have conversation with Jill Lepore about America, democracy and the truth. And we'll be coming back to British politics. And of course, we're going to be talking about the American presidential election. There's lots to come. There's lots to talk about. Do join us for all of it. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.